Welcome to the Unveiled Podcast, where we are discussing psychedelics and spirituality. Usually my co-host Dave Phillips is with me, but I am hosting a 10-part series on the legalization of psychedelics in Canada, and particularly working with Theracil as they mount a charter challenge here in Canada, advocating for the rights of cancer patients who have end-of-life anxiety to have legal access to psilocybin mushrooms in consultation with their doctor and therapist. And so we are bringing different experts across Canada and thinkers uh, from all around the world to weigh in on this conversation and to really uh, inform uh, the public on not, o- not only the medicinal aspect to these substances, but on the, the transformative power in people's lives that uh, these substances can really do in a time in our culture and our world where anxiety, fear, depression are out of control, mental health issues are a number one issue that are facing our planet. And so we've got a substance, we have a medicine that can help people transform their lives in powerful ways. And, uh, and so today I am very lucky to have on the show probably one of my favorite uh, thinkers on this topic in the world and uh it's like you know when you kind of when you meet a hero and uh you're like oh i really hope they're as cool as i think they are i've read their books and listened to them and uh you just you know really hope that there's a connection well that's that was the reality for this guest Uh, i have the privilege of interviewing dr uh, bill richards who is a psychologist in psychiatry, the department uh, of the John Hopkins University School of Medicine, uh, Bayview Medical Center. He is a consultant trainer at sites of psychedelic research internationally. Uh, He's a teacher in the program of psychedelic therapy and research at the California Institute of Integral Studies and a clinician in private practice in Baltimore. And uh, Bill Richards is kind of the godfather of psychedelics. He is up there for sure with Stan Groff and and many of the others, uh, kind of the old school folks that were doing this research in the early 60s. He was doing research in 63 with LSD, getting powerful transformation if with alcoholism, depression, narcotic addiction, psychological distress, terminal cancer. He's done all of the studies. And when you start Googling Bill Richards, let's go do that. You Google Bill Richards and, and you say, let's look at his you know, CV, his uh, how, many, how many clinical uh, studies he's done using psychedelics, randomly double-blind trials. This guy is the top. And uh, I mean, I'm just going to read some of the titles of his um, publications, just so you as an audience get to know how rigorous uh, the, the research is that, that, that he's been part of, right? So this is the title of one of them. Uh, this is from December 2016 in the, Psycho, the Journal of uh, Psychopharmacology. Psilocybin produces, this is the title of the, of the, of the publication. Psilocybin produces substantial and sustained decreases in depression and anxiety in patients with life-threatening cancer, a randomized double-blind trial. Now, I mean, this is the gold standard, right? So does this substance, is it safe and is it effective at moving the needle, at moving the needle for end-of-life anxiety? And here is the definitive study in 2016, authored by Bill Richards. It took them years to get this double-blind study uh, done and FDA approved, and he's done it. And so um, this, I mean, on and on. I mean, the, the, the list, I mean, I love this one. Psilocybin occasioned mystical-type experiences, immediate and persisting dose-related effects. 
I mean, Bill is the master. And so uh, I'm so excited for him to be on the show. And I wanted to give you a longer intro to him so you can feel my enthusiasm about the fact that I get to have a conversation with a world expert. And we, we the conversations ranged from his personal stories, uh, a conversation with his wife uh, about his wife who was dying and, and how uh, his, his experience with her and what happened uh, with psychedelics and, and uh, her experiences. We talk about the studies. We talk about uh, how he has put together some of the top um, music playlist um, that Johns Hopkins uses and how he does that. Um, he talk a lot about spirituality because his the best book I have personally read on psychedelics. If you'd say, "Hey, Peg, which is the you know the best one?" I would say Bill Richards' book called "Sacred Sacred Knowledge: Psychedelics and Religious Experiences." It was uh, uh, came out in 2015. It is to me the most uh, comprehensive understanding of the spiritual nature of these. Uh, medicines. Um, so it is without further ado that uh, I introduce you to Bill Richards. Uh, Bill, welcome to Unveiled Podcast. Tell us a little bit about the kind of work you've been doing over the last number of years, and we, then we can dive into uh, some of the conversations about end-of-life uh, p- patients and that kind of thing. But welcome to the show, uh, Bill. Thanks a lot for coming on. Hi, Bill. Hi there. Yeah, you can see me before, eh? Yeah, this is great. No, this is... Uh, this okay. is this will this will be totally fine. Uh, first, why don't you just start by saying your first and last name and what your role is uh, at your current research facility at Johns Hopkins? Well, I'm uh, Dr. Bill Richards. I've been involved in psychedelic research since uh, about 1963 when I was a graduate student in Germany, in Göttingen, at Johns Hopkins after 22 years of dormancy uh, in the United States. Uh, my colleague and I were able to obtain FDA approval uh, to relaunch uh, psychedelic research. Uh, and we started a project with psilocybin back in about 1999, uh, 2000. And we are now in our 20th year of research at Johns Hopkins. Uh, We have established the uh, Center for Psychedelic and Consciousness Research at Johns Hopkins with substantial funding and a growing uh, staff. And it's a very hopeful time. It, it really is. I mean, it's incredible over the last probably five years that just to see the explosion of interest and research and, you know, therapists and the media attention. And it, it just seems like there's a revolution going on of openness. Why do you think, why do you think that's happening now in our time? Why, why in this last few years has been this openness that you haven't seen your entire life? I have my theories. I really don't know for sure. Uh, Back in the uh, late 60s, there was a lot of social change going on um, in the women's movement, in race relations, uh, uh, in the anti-war movement, et cetera, et cetera. And I think uh, uh, LSD and to some extent, Timothy Leary became almost the icon of that age. And then we had President Nixon uh, uh, with the legislation creating the scheduling of drugs 
and uh, viewing Timothy Leary as the most dangerous man in America. Uh, and that's, and there was a lot of sensational publicity, you know, not only in journal articles, but in uh, uh, TV dramas and so on, uh, that people took LSD and went crazy, you know, and kind of implied that everyone would jump off buildings and have deformed babies. And, and now we know that that's just not true, you know. The drugs do need to be used wisely and responsibly. Uh, they're not for everyone, but they are incredibly safe uh, physiologically for just about everyone. And they're very safe psychologically for most people, especially those who have uh, good instruction and preparation and take the drug in a uh, interpersonally grounded uh, relationship of some kind. So uh, it is a very hopeful time to see all this coming alive. Another factor I think is that there were a lot of people who chose not to take psychedelics back in the 1960s, but they had friends who did, and they know that most of them turned out okay, <laughs> you know? And, uh, and there's an awful lot of people out there who took psychedelics illegally in co as college students or whatever, but had very positive experiences, but they've never talked about it because the drugs have been illegal, you know? Uh, when my book came out, a couple of my neighbors came over to talk about their psilocybin experience. Oh, wow. And I never would have guessed they knew anything about it, you know? So I think there, there is a huge community that's really very knowledgeable in a very reasonable uh, way. And then the films that have been made recently, uh, Robert Barnhart's uh, New Understanding, mm -hmm. the uh, uh, fantastic Fungi movie, Neurons to Nirvana, etc. Mm -hmm. uh, coupled with some very good books like uh, uh, Michael Pollan's yeah. book, yeah. which is selling very well, mm -hmm. and uh, my own book for whatever uh, contribution that might make, uh, um, Jim Fadiman's book mm -hmm. on how to use psychedelics responsibly, and I know there are a number of them in the uh, process of being published right now that are very well written and so there's kind of good education getting out there uh in the world there's a lot of people who will never look at our statistics in the journal of psychopharmacology you know it's a hundred dollars first prescription i think <laughs> or subscription rather yeah, yeah. Yeah. but um uh in the uh, popular uh, world of the early 21st century, uh, many people who are learning about this field feels it's, feel it's very reasonable to explore. Why, why shouldn't you be able to explore your own mind uh, to uh, do more intensive psychotherapy than 
ordinary um, sitting in an office and talking can accomplish. Mm. Um, what's the big deal? This is a non-toxic, uh, non-addictive substance that's been around for 5,000 years, at least, maybe longer. And it, it kind of emerges in cultures and gets suppressed and emerges and gets suppressed, sort of like mushrooms. <laughs> you know? And um, uh, what are we afraid of? You know, that people might uh, uh, become more compassionate. Uh, <laughs> Less fearful, more compassion, more empathy. A little more creative, uh, perhaps less willing to uh, go to another country and shoot a stranger, mm. you know? Mm. Uh, but I'm not sure that in the evolution of humanity, that's a bad thing, mm. you know? Mm. Yeah, I uh, love the coming together, all these different streams that, that uh, you know, you get to be alive, I get to be alive in this new resurgence of, of both interest and research. And, uh, and I, I think uh, we're on the verge of something, uh, something big. And there's a shift in consciousness that I think we're all feeling and we're seeing it uh, in, some of this, uh, in some of the studies you guys are producing and, and the openness to them, yeah. Yeah, and it holds up in different studies in different universities with different teams, you know, both in the US and Canada and Europe, you know. It's, it's not just a fluke, it's very systematically replicated and supported that if you uh, establish a, a relationship with a person, uh, if you provide basic instruction about how to navigate in these internal meditative states, um, the drug is, and presumably that you have uh, a safe drug in the right dosage, whether a natural mushroom or a synthesized uh, uh, substance. We do know that what's created in test tubes is profoundly sacred stuff. And, you know, to be able to, the value of that is that we know the precise dosage and uh, purity of the substance, which of course the whole medical community and the FDA uh, EMA values, you know, uh, with natural mushrooms, there's about 200 known species on our planets and, and many of them have other chemicals besides psilocybin uh, within them and there's all these unknown variables about how they've been harvested and how they've been stored and you know, whether someone has added something to them to uh, try to change or improve them or, you know, and with the synthesized substance, those issues just disappear. Mm. And um, my, uh, my theme uh, is that I want to see psilocybin therapy made available to people who can't afford to go to Amsterdam or South America to do it legally, um, who are suffering, whether from end of life distress, from addictions, from depression. Uh, many of them uh, don't 
own a tie-dye t-shirt. <laughs> you know, they can't spell psilocybin. Um, uh, they're never going to grow their own mushrooms in their closet, you know. But, but they're suffering humans, and we have a very uh, effective way of helping them. Mm -hmm. And why sh should it not be available? You know, can, can you, I love that. I just love your heart and passion. And I, I just want to do everything I can to help realize your dream that, you know, obviously started uh, within you in the 60s. You saw the potentiality of this, you know, 50, 60 years ago. And now we're starting to see your kind of some of the original visionaries. It's pretty exciting, Bill. Um, Take me into a couple of, a couple of minutes, take me into um, the double-blind end-of-life cancer study that you were a part of at Johns Hopkins. Just give, Johns Hopkins, give me a little bit of an overview of what that was, uh, about, the, you know, ab about how rigorous it was, because you're one of the folks that were up close and personal to that rigorous study. So just talk to us about that double-blind study that you guys published. Boy, I, re I really should check my notes. It's several years since <laughs> we published that, and there have been other studies. So I'm not sure I remember all the statistics anymore. Um, Even generally, just kind of walk us through what, we, what you guys were looking for in uh, uh, these patients. Yeah, th this was building on work with cancer patients we did back in the uh, 1960s and 1970s. Uh, uh, mainly then using LSD and DPT, dipropyl tryptamine, a substance very similar to psilocybin. Um, a little bit with psilocybin back then. Um, and that was uh, really my uh, primary uh, research project. I, was, I wrote my dissertation uh, on that work years ago. Uh, but I experienced just so many absolutely beautiful transformations in people's lives and in their family dynamics. Um, how often the depressed cancer patient uh, would become the almost the social worker for the family and would help the family talk about the difficult things and, and live, have a good time, have some music and a few chuckles on the last day of your life. Why not, you know? Instead of lying in bed isolated and preoccupied with pain and withdrawing from the world and scared and feeling hopeless, you know? No need, you know? So, uh, I just witnessed so much of this uh, that uh, I treated the last person uh, in 1966. Uh, is that right? No, 1977. I'm sorry, it was 1977. I treated the last cancer patient here in the United States and the work got completely dormant. Um, actually, footnotes there, not because the government uh, withdrew permission, actually, but because the state administrators felt it was too controversial and were, <laughs> were afraid to uh, continue supporting it, you know? Uh, so, uh, you know, the, 
it's, it's not just uh, Uncle Samuel that we have to deal with, but it's many layers of uh, bureaucracy and insecurity and uh, concern about what taxpayers think and so on. Um, the study at Hopkins, as I remember, it, there were three studies, one at UCLA, one at New York University, and one at Hopkins. Hopkins was the largest. Uh, and it simply, uh, as I recall, it gave two psilocybin sessions a month apart, if I remember right, two cancer patients uh, into a low dose and a high dose, uh, kind of randomly. Uh, in order to investigate uh, that it's not only the drug, but it's the quality of experience, the intensity of experience that is really therapeutic. That what, what seems most healing and enduring is the memory of an experience that happens on one six hour day and these transcendental states of awareness are sometimes only minutes in that six-hour day or less, seconds even, where the mind seems to break out of the constraints of time, space, cause and effect, and somehow tap into what we call the eternal or the infinite, uh, a state of consciousness we hardly have any words to describe. But it's incredibly beautiful. It feels incredibly real. Uh, and it's often uh, reported as kind of impregnated by love, uh, playfulness, joy. And people remember that afterwards when the drug wears off. You don't have to keep taking the drug, you know? Uh, it's interesting, this is also true of people who have these experiences without psychedelics, the so-called natural mystics out there. Maybe they, in their brain chemistry, they generate their own DMT or whatever it is. Uh, but these experiences throughout uh, human history are recorded. We often call these people mystics, you know? And in all the world religions, they're there to be found, uh, who kind of testify to the reality of revelation and uh, this uh, world where everything seems to make sense in spite of suffering and death and injustice and all this. You know, so it's, uh, and what is so incredible is that these experiences happen in very ordinary people, you know? Uh, people with junior high school educations from the inner city who are impoverished. Uh, I, you don't have to have a uh, doctoral degree in comparative religion, you know? <laughs> it just seems to be there. And, and it happens in uh, good, honest skeptics, perhaps even easier than diehard believers either theistic or atheistic, you know? Uh, it's, if you go into your mind with a sense of openness, curiosity, trust, and you just kind of dive in and collect the experiences that occur, 
it's just incredible what happens in people's minds. How beautiful, how meaningful, how well choreographed for that particular person. And then the, the yield afterwards of being able to, to live more fully is uh, dramatic. So in that, yeah. so after that study, you, you had something like 85% or something of people that would say that was one of the most profound experiences of their life. Is that kind of right? Yes. Yeah. Uh, well, we have a questionnaire we use. Was it the most uh, profound spiritual experience of your life? Or, or was it one of the three most, or one of the five most, I forget what. But, but you know, most people rate it way up there. Uh, not, not everyone has a... Uh, profound mystical transcendental experience the first time many do uh, some deal with their own personal uh unfinished business their grief and their guilt and their uh interpersonal conflicts but even when the whole day is spent in that domain of consciousness if you will uh it's very, very helpful in alleviating depression, reducing anxiety, opening up interpersonal relationships, reducing uh, pain and preoccupation with pain. And uh, people live until they die. Why not? You know, I guess that's the thing, right? I mean, just the, you, you said, why not? Like, <clears throat> if you think about the Canadian context we're in, and it's kind of an interesting thing, we have a national law that allows people to get a physician to aid and assist them in dying if they feel like their final days are too much. So we've established that as a right for a Canadian citizen. You have access to a drug that will kill you with the, at the hand of a physician. Doesn't it seem logical that you would get access to a mushroom that could help you live and make sense of your final days. What, what, what's your comment on that situation in Canada? Well, you've said it, yeah. You know, it's crazy. It's absolutely crazy. Why should we be afraid of uh, a drug that will help us live, you know? And many of those people who think they might want to terminate their own lives through physician-assisted suicide, I think if they had a good psychedelic experience, they, they might say, well, it's nice to know that I always have that option, but uh, I may not need it. And many people don't. They live very fully right up to the end. And you come to the end and they say, well, it's been great, guys. I got to go. <laughs> you know, and... Uh, uh, there's a feeling of trust, of security in the world. And, and the fear of death gets replaced by kind of a curiosity and an openness. You know, it, it's very interesting that these people don't become suicidal. You know, they say, I lost my fear of death, but uh, boy, I'm going to treasure every day I, I can have. You know, that's a, it's amazing. And, it really is. And when the time to die does come, it's, uh, it's kind of uh, almost welcomed or accepted 
like as a transition in consciousness, perhaps, as a spiritual waking up of uh, what many religious people would say, it's time to go home, you know? Hmm. Uh, I've had a precious human life, what a great gift, uh, but, you know, it's complete now, you know? And on, on to new adventures. Hmm. Or if you want to be skeptical and say, well, maybe there is nothing after death, well, then there's nothing to fear either. <laughs> you you uh your the title of your book sacred knowledge which was a it's just a for me it connected with me most because i come from a background uh of philosophy and theology uh, that's what i did my graduate work in uh i had some uh, experiences as an adult where we lost a, a child uh and and just began to drift away from my own personal faith um, and had trouble with the package that Christianity came in. And, and it's really been lately through my experience with psychedelics that I'm finding my way back to my own faith. It has, it's very different. It's very open. It's non-judgmental. There's no concepts of hell. It's, the hell is in our mind. It's inside of us. And so your book grounded me into this religious tradition that I had been, I'd learned my whole life. But then I began to find a new way through into that. You have no, you, you're not scared to talk about faith and spirituality, Bill, as a, as a part of this psychedelic experience. Um, sure. why, why for you? Why for you is spirituality and, and religion actually a really important grounding to understand this uh, psychedelic experience? Mm -hmm. Well, it, it's simply there. Um, it's waiting to be discovered. You know, uh, good old agnostics have profound revelatory experiences um we not long ago we actually had someone who said well you know i'm an atheist that's my religion it's just like being a presbyterian or whatever you know <laughs> i'm an atheist but i saw god <laughs> and i've got to think about this you know uh, uh it's it's almost kind of delightful at times and people can label it many ways, you know? Some will call it God, some might call it Brahman, uh, the ground of being, the, even the void that contains all reality. You know, there's different words from different religious systems, uh, but that there's something at the core of our being that is incredibly real, incredibly beautiful, incredibly uh, loving, not as kind of a soupy uh, romantic emotion, but as an intelligent energy at the very core of, of human existence. You may know the line in uh, Dante's Divine Comedy at the end, that it is love that moves the sun and other stars. I think he knew what he was writing about, you know? What a great title uh, for a film, you know? It's love that moves the moon and the stars. I love that, Bill. I might, uh, that's a beautiful yeah. reference. <laughs> I, I, I love it. Uh, you know, what, what about for you? I'm, I'm, uh, uh, and I, again, it, it, I don't, I don't want to go there if you don't want to go there, but there was a very moving section in your book where you talked about your late wife, Ilsa. And, uh, here she is at uh, 50, I think she got, you said she died, diagnosed at 40 and then passed away. I think she was 50 or something. Um, That's right. 
do you, do you mind taking us into that story? Because I thought it was so beautifully told and it, and it shows that what, are, what, are, what can open up by in these moments of these, these psilocybin experiences with people that are in their end of life. Do you mind telling us that story? Give us some context, Bill. Well, actually, I'll expand the story uh, a little beyond what's in the book. You know, sometimes people say, my gosh, you were so self-disclosing with what you put in the book. And I sometimes think, well, you have no idea what I didn't put in the book. <laughs> but uh, yeah, Yozun uh, was born in 1936 uh, in Dortmund in Germany. And as a seven-year-old child, she witnessed the bombing of uh, Dortmund standing at the bunker at the entrance to the bunker with her father watching the bombs fall peeping people being killed all around her i met her uh, as a student at andover newton theological school in the psychology of religion program and we fell in love and got married and she suffered from post-traumatic stress disorder whenever there was a fire engine going by back Past, there was always an air raid siren, you know, and she'd get tense and terrified. Uh, she suffered from depression, really feeling, is it right to bring children into this suffering world, you know? Um, but she was a psychiatric nurse, and we moved down from Boston to Baltimore to do work with psychedelic research. We had two NIMH-funded grants in those days. That was around 1967. And uh, in those days, in order to uh, function in psychedelic research, you were offered two on-the-job training LSD experiences. And like all other employees, she received LSD, uh, just as we give it to patients with um, music and preparation and in a nice kind of living room setting. And uh, she had a very profoundly meaningful uh, experience. Uh, and it's hard to put into words, but I remember she expressed it something like watching a gun shoot off and then it becoming the, the big bang and the eternal world where there was just this intuition that all is well, or in religious language, he's got the whole world in his hands, you know? Well, anyway, it completely wiped out her post-traumatic stress disorder and her depression, you know? And she went on to be a wonderful mother. But as you know, at 50, even though we were working with cancer patients, she developed breast cancer. And I remember how shocked we were at first. It's like, uh, boy, if anyone can handle this, we ought to be able to. <laughs> but uh, uh, she lived a decade uh, very fully. Uh, most people didn't even know she had cancer. She um, had uh, uh, finally, uh, when it came time to die, she... Uh, she lived very fully up to the end. She didn't feel any need to take a psychedelic again. She still had the memories from before. Uh, 
Um, and uh, she had a, a very uh, peaceful, blissful uh, death at, here at home. Was, uh, we, I was lying beside her, you know. Uh, two little boys asleep in the house, one eleven and one thirteen, you know. So, uh, one other uh, footnote to the story is that when she and I were uh, working with cancer patients with uh, DPT at that time, dipropyl tryptamine, uh, one of our patients turned out to literally have been a 19 year old young man who dropped bombs over Dortmund. <laughs> oh, so gosh. here we were, you know, the 19 year old man, young man was now a 49 year old terminal cancer patient. Uh, Ilza had moved from being a seven year old traumatized child to a 36 year old psychiatric nurse you know and there they were holding hands reconciling um <laughs> powerful stuff uh you called it synchronicity i think you know but um a different time uh, a different world different social pressures and they connected with their love of bombs and Brock, Brahms and Bach, rather, you know, you know, and uh, the war was history. You know? Wow, that's amazing. Amazing story. Incredible, beautiful story there. Wow. Um, but the, 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 the magnitude of what this research can contribute to the world. You, 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 were, you used words like staggering, like this is game changing, you know, revolutionary. Those are the kind of words you've used. Yeah. When, but it's not just giving the drug. That's right. You know, it's not just throwing the drug in your mouth and seeing what happens, either the synthesized molecule or the mushroom. It's with preparation, with interpersonal grounding, uh, the right dose under the right conditions. But when those are in place, it's, it's a sacrament. Yeah. Wow. You know, you, you talked about the, the need for a spiritual experience. There's almost a correlation between people that list on the questionnaire, I had a, a spiritual experience. Those people who have that seem to have the long lasting effects. And those who maybe haven't yet, don't it, that seems to be the, the the linchpin is that can you explain that yeah well people benefit as i mentioned who don't have spiritual experiences just intensive accelerated psychotherapy you know that's worth doing you know but those who have these these uh transcendental death and rebirth uh feeling uh, you almost don't say I had a mystical experience. It's more, might be more accurate to say the mystical experience had me, <laughs> you know, because uh, the everyday self kind of melts into it. Like uh, uh, the Hindus have this wonderful image of the drop of water 
of the ordinary self merging with the ocean of Brahman. And when you're in that ocean mode, um, you're not your little self bragging about an experience. You're part of something infinitely vaster and greater. Uh, but yeah, when those deep experiences occur and people try to find a few words, but they remember it, you know, something, uh, make, it gives you the sense of be, safety, of being at home in the universe. Uh, that in spite of all the traumas and injustices you've experienced in life, uh, it's still a good world. Mm. Is there ways that you've learned to develop that can help promote those experiential, those spiritual experiences for therapists that, that, you know, yes, we got set and setting, you've got intentions, you've got trust in the room. Um, have you found other little things that can help promote that spiritual experience for people? Well, certainly uh, the wise use of music during the period of drug action. Uh, music can provide kind of a, uh, a supportive matrix that carries you as you move through consciousness, provides security, sort of like the trapeze net uh, for the trapeze artist, you may not need it, but if you do, it's immediately there, you know, it's going to keep you safe. I don't think the music causes content in most cases, but it allows it, it content. It gives the structure, nonverbal structure and security that's needed to go beyond words and language uh, deep into the psyche. You, you've you been part of creating those playlists at Johns Hopkins. Uh, tell me a little bit about that. Tell me about uh, how you came up with the current playlist and are there a number of them and are they evolving? It's always evolving. You know, we're always, you can only have six hours of music. <laughs> so we're always trying to uh, differentiate between the excellent and the very good, you know, and everyone has their favorites, you know. Um, but uh, music like uh, Samuel Barber's Adagio for Strings, uh, the Nimrod section of Elgar's uh, Enigma Variations, uh, the slow movement of the Brahms Violin Concerto, uh, the Transfiguration section of Richard Strauss's Death and Transfiguration, um, the slow movement of the Mozart clarinet concerto. What, what is it about these pieces that seem to work well? About them, and, and the Goretzky Third Symphony, a more uh, recent work, uh, is just people of all different backgrounds report that that music is incredibly meaningful and helpful and supportive. And many of these people, if you ask them in advance, you know, do you like classical music? They would have said no. You know, like it's, it has nothing to do with the everyday preferences of either the person or the staff. But there's something about the structure of certain music. Uh, it almost feels like it takes you back into the eternal world or into the mind of the composer or something like that. 
Um, and it's forward leading, it's unfolding, it's chromatically ascending often. Uh, and it, uh, it, it doesn't have unpredictable changes in rhythm. It doesn't frighten you. It strengthens you and supports you. So that's one part of ensuring safety. Uh, you can also have a very, very valuable uh, session in total silence, you know. The music doesn't have to be there. But frankly, total silence is very hard to come by. You know, people sneeze, air conditioning system go on and off, doors creak, <laughs> et cetera. And we may as well have structured sound because we're gonna have sound, you know? You know, Fra Francois Bouzette, I talked to her and she, she uses a lot of uh, uh, kind of some drumming to help people get into a pattern in their mind. I, have, you, have you experimented with those tracks? Yes, uh, sometimes drumming can be very effective. Uh, again, there's a structure though, there's a rhythm. Uh, there's a dependable uh, beat going on, you know? Infinite variations. Um, but yes, drumming alone, uh, my own preference would be not to use it for uh, the onset and the peak times, maybe later, but that may just be my own preference. Uh, but yes, uh, it's, drumming can be a hmm. part of a playlist. You know? and, and, and we keep, with each study, we uh, tweak it a little bit, you know? Um, are, they, are they different? different uh, the MDMA trips are obviously shorter. Do you use different playlists for the MDMA than you do as with psilocybin? Um, well, I, I haven't personally been involved in the MDMA uh, research. Uh, there are different uh, centers where psilocybin is used, where they use different uh, playlists. Um, I just completed a, a study at Hopkins with uh, professional religious leaders from different world religions where we gave them two high-dose psilocybin sessions and uh, we wanted, uh, you know, rabbis and imams and uh, Buddhist sangha leaders, you know, as well as the spectrum from Baptist to Orthodox and Roman Catholic uh, faiths in Christianity. So we, I thought the playlist was a little too heavy on Christian music, so we tried to increase more from the uh, Islamic and the, the Jewish heritages, for example. Uh, so we're always kind of tweaking it a little for each study, uh, but uh, there's a common thread of seeking for uh, uh, music that gives a unfolding, strong, supportive, nonverbal uh, climate to the experience. Yeah. What was that? Can you just give me some? Uh, I don't know if you can talk in more specifics, but that's a that religious professional study. Um, how how did that turn out? What were some of your findings? Uh, we'll publish in in about another year. Okay. Okay. It's too early to talk about it. We're in the okay. follow up phase right now. But, but were you uh, ha happy with how it, how it moved? Very much so. Yeah, I think everyone uh, profoundly valued their experience and no one felt harmed mm. by it. And 
in any way. Yeah. I mean, think about the potential of that, of, 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 of crossing unity and connections between religions. You know, if we had leaders that can move outside of their ego and their certainty about their religious texts, and they begin to have conversations about the greater, you know, spiritual state in, in the universe. I mean, it could be absolutely mind-blowing. Well, let's go for it. Yeah, my, my fantasy is that uh, these drugs will be used not only in medicine, but in education. Mm. And, and one part of educational use is training of clergy. And there should be weekend seminars with psychedelic uh, drug administration in retreat settings under ideal, safe, medically supervised conditions. And people should get academic credit for it because there is, there's a learning we, a, a number of our clergy have said afterwards, it sounds silly almost, but my gosh, I really believe what I preach every Sunday morning. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, or there's a sense of uh, what the theologian Paul Tillich called the really real God. You know, we have all our different concepts and historical creeds and traditions and rituals but there's something that's being manifested in and through all of that. Mm -hmm. And at the origin of those religious systems, there may be essentially the same form of consciousness. Mm -hmm. uh, Bill, I mean, you're at, you're at a stage in your life now where you get to do these beautiful, uh, you get to do this research, you're, you're obviously having fun, you're, there's just a beauty and lightness to you in, in this place. How, how has your, uh, experience not just being a therapist and a researcher but what about your own personal life how, how have you benefited how have you changed shifted grown from your personal experience with these uh, sacred entheogens well, I feel that's something you have to ask the people around me <laughs> you know, is he easier to live with than he used to be <laughs> I, I don't know <laughs> um, yeah, I, uh, well, from my very first experience uh, when I was 23 years old in Germany, which caught me completely by surprise. I, I didn't even know what psilocybin was. I, I, there was just this new drug that I thought would give me some insight into early childhood, you know, and this incredibly profound experience happened. Um, but even in the wake of that experience, I remember feeling more, um, Maslow's term was inner directed, that my identity, my beliefs, my values came from within me, instead of feeling like I was a puppet of social forces and the expectations of others were controlling my thought and my behavior. Uh, certainly a, a, a value of that life is intrinsically sacred. Every human being is of value. Uh, beauty is built into the structure of reality. Um, there's a, one thing we can learn from Hinduism is that there's a playfulness aspect in the creation of the world, you know? Love There's a God who laughed. 
<laughs> Lila, you, you bet, you know. Um, but that this deep sense that ultimately all is well, but that doesn't preclude fighting for justice and uh, working hard uh, as I move through time in this in this lifetime. Um, but that there's we're part of something bigger than any of us and all of us, and. Uh, the the world <laughs> in my book i comment on these patients i've had who are afraid of flying and i said should should i uh, remind them that we're on a little uh, spinning planet zooming around the sun all the time <laughs> and we've always been flying <laughs> it's just one little galaxy uh, one little solar system that that there is a bigger world and uh, uh, we don't have to fear it, you know. Mm. Just you be know, thankful to be part of it. Yeah. And that's 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 fifty years ago that that experience for you, at least, eh? Uh, more than that, yeah. And and it's still you can still feel it. Oh, sure. It's amazing. You don't, and uh, people who have had spontaneous mystical experiences would say the same thing. You know, it's interesting. One thing my book has done, I've gotten some beautiful letters from people. And uh, one of them was from a man who spontaneously had a mystical experience early in his childhood. And it has given him a sense of security uh, throughout his whole life. But he's never told anyone about it, not even his wife, for fear they'll view him as schizophrenic or weird or something, you know? And yet it's the deepest treasure he has, you know? And somehow reading my book gave him a language to talk about it and legitimized it and let him know he's not alone, you know? Wow, you but know... You have a you have a nice little uh, piece. Sorry, I'm just getting more comfortable. Um, you have a nice little section on um, just on death and dying in your book, and uh, you know it really moved me. I think there's this sense in our culture that we have um, we've medicalized death, we've bracketed it out, we've let people be up in you know put on oxygen and IVs, and we let the nurses and doctors take care of them, and then we put them in boxes in a coffin, and you know like. And, and, and there's, there's, I think there's an, an opportunity here for, for some of like, for this end of life anxiety and, and for our concepts of death to be flipped upside down. And we could learn from indigenous peoples about how to embrace death. And I think psilocybin is an opportunity for, for us as a culture to go, let's get up close. We're all going to die. Like, can yeah. you talk a little bit about uh, just death and dying and as a culture and how these how, how psychedelics offer an opportunity for us to get closer to own death and dying well we've had an incredible taboo on death just like we used to have a taboo on sex you know now we can talk about sex pretty openly you know but death is still pretty taboo you know and <laughs> one of the craziest things is that when you're standing at a casket uh, beside someone and they look at the corpse and they say how good he looks. <laughs> but people don't know what to say. They don't know what to do, you know? Um, 
and uh, it's almost like I forgot uh, that he was mortal. And good grief, maybe I'm mortal too, but I'd rather not think about it, you know? The truth is we're all mortal. Every one of us, everyone who's ever been born has died. So if this is part of the structure of life, um, maybe it's worth uh, exploring and understanding and approaching, and if our minds are indeed capable of tuning into uh, states of awareness uh, beyond time and space and substance, uh, let's explore that, you know? Um, perhaps this is part of the evolution of consciousness. This is the growing edge. Some people think it may, if more of us become aware of it, we might not destroy ourselves and our planet after all, you know? Mm -hmm. um, there's nothing wrong with uh, being a little more enlightened and compassionate and maybe uh, creative. Why not? Why should we fear that? You know? Yeah. Do you have advice? Is there any kind of uh, uh, just advice as a person who's been living and, and doing this your entire life? As you, th as you, I know you train therapists. You did a training session with therapists at, in, in New York uh, at, at Horizons this last uh, last weekend. Um, what what are, what are what's the advice you're giving to therapists now that are that are moving into this field? What are what are some guidelines that you would that you would just say? Hey, here's some things I've been thinking about. What are some guidelines that you kind of Hope people therapists get. We're going to need lots and lots of therapists, especially if uh, this becomes accepted in many palliative care centers as part of mental health uh, services. Um, and it's about to begin at the, as you may know, in the Aquilino Cancer Center in Rockville, Maryland. Oh. Uh, they have government approval and we have a new wellness center ready to open that's going to include a research project with psilocybin you know so the future is now and if this prototype in studies like that including bruce's in canada you know if he gets clearance as this becomes more normalized we're going to need lots and lots of qualified people to implement it and i think it's very much like the hospice movement you know, it was just Cicely Saunders, this idealistic physician in London, who thought people should be able to have their pets with them when they're dying <laughs> or whatever. Uh, insurance coverage for hospice care. We have hospice certification training programs, et cetera. I think the same thing will happen with psychedelic therapy. Uh, we need some training. We need certification. We need uh, standards of ethics um etc um and it's all unfolding very rapidly but yeah if uh insofar as we're trying to train therapists now what are we looking for um well uh above all people who uh are capable of being uh present patient open being a therapist uh, with psychedelic therapy is not for everyone, you know? And there, there are some who uh, care about the field who can help in administration or fundraising or psychological testing or, or whatever. 
go for it, you know, whatever your unique skills are. But for those who are really going to be interacting uh, with the people receiving psilocybin and guiding them through, uh, there's has to be some knowledge of other states of consciousness and respect for them, uh, whether through uh, legal psychedelic uh, training or other ways, uh, meditative practices, natural childbirth, uh, sensory isolation or flooding. And there, there's all kinds of ways of triggering these states. Uh, what's unique about psilocybin is that it's so potent and reliable that you know it can take you to a very deep place in a very prescribed time period mm -hmm. it's hard for meditative techniques to do that you know mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but uh, that doesn't mean it's not possible to access those same states of consciousness uh with certain meditative procedures you know do you have the you know, even this could be off the record. I, I won't. I won't include this. But as I am, um, in my own journey as a you know as a as an ordained minister and and now as a as a as a as a storyteller, I'm you know I'm interested in, in continuing to explore my own my own inner life. And I've had two two quite big trips and then a smaller one on LSD and. Um, is there a kind of like, I don't know, four or five times a year? Or what are, what are, what, are, what have, what have people experienced as a kind of, what's a, what, what's, what's good for the human? How much can, can people can do in, in exploring these as a, as a psychonaut? I think it depends on the person, uh, the personality structure, uh, how much psychodynamic work you have to resolve in your own life and, and what you value in life. It's a little like how often should you go to the symphony or the art museum? You, you, you know, for some people, uh, once a year is enough. You know, some would like it to do it once every six months, some once every five years, you know. Mm. And um, my most uh, fabulous vacations was going to Bali. And I think, oh boy, you know, would I like to do that again? Well, yeah, it was absolutely wonderful. Maybe, maybe in a few years, you know. Uh, but, but you don't have to compulsively keep returning to it. You know, if you go deep within the psyche, the memory stays with you. And, and you draw strength from that memory and you try to apply those insights to your relationships in everyday life and that's what we call uh spiritual development or the journey of life you know it's it's not just compulsively taking the drug over and over you know mm -hmm. on the other hand when someone has a valuable experience and six months later uh would like to take the drug again to kind of go deeper or explore more uh, we shouldn't label that as failure you know, the treatment didn't work. He has to do it again. You know, how many medical procedures do we have that even last six months, you know? Um, but it's more, it's a whole new way of thinking. It's more than a, it's not a drug effect, like taking Prozac and having an antidepressant effect. It's uh, facilitating exploration of the mystery of your own being discovering some treasures in there 
resolving some old fears and conflicts, perhaps, and, and coming back to live. Well, thank you so much, Bill. I mean, I, I could uh, talk with you for hours. This is really uh, such an insightful um, piece here. So thank you, Bill, for taking the time. And uh, we really hope that, uh, you know, as, as, as I'm working now, now with Bruce and we're trying to get this story out, uh, I th thank you for lending your voice of support in this project. And hopefully we can see a shift here in, in Canada as an opening up to this. Yeah, you know that I, I'm also supporting uh, Bruce in the legal yeah. uh, dimensions of this. Uh, mm. Yeah, uh, as an expert, uh, yeah. an expert witness. So I thank you so much, Bill. Let's keep moving ahead. Thanks for your contributions. Thank you so much, Bill. I really appreciate it. And again, thank you for all the work you've done in your life. You are helping heal thousands and thousands of people. Thank you very much. Uh, it's an honor. Okay. All the best. <laughs>